Welcome to Architects of Imagination, a game dev podcast where we talk to the brilliant minds behind your favorite video games. And today I am very pleased to announce my good buddy, Tomo Moriwaki. Welcome to the show, Tomo. I'm glad to be here. Thanks right. for having me on. <laughs> um, today's episode is sponsored by Undertone Effects. That is a, a studio specializing in visual effects for video games. Thank you to Undertone Effects. And uh, let's just start out with just talk about um, Tomo. You're, you're currently serving as chief creative officer for Hyperkinetic Studios, which <coughs> you and others founded. Tell us what led you to that, uh, what exactly a chief creative officer is, and what fun stuff are you guys working on right now? To start off with, I think in the video game company, chief creative officer is uh, kind of at the foundation of it, sort of just like the lead game designer in a lot of cases. Uh, but I feel like over the last, especially 10 or 15 years, um, it's taken on more serious kind of like uh, high level uh, storytelling and sort of entertainment product management uh, aspects. And uh, I think they're also expecting you to I know, say cool stuff. Yeah. Now, Hyperkinetic started in uh, 2014. Uh, uh, me and Rich Bisso and uh, Dave Padilla found ourselves uh, not, or finding our, found an opportunity to, to stop whatever we were doing and uh, start a company. And, uh, you know, I feel like uh, you feel it, right? This idea, like we're old console game devs and we have this dream that we're going to start a company and we're going to do it our way. That was definitely a big chunk of it. Although I feel like our approach was um, to care more about uh, sustainability and figuring out what a company in the future is going to actually be about. And so we we tried out all kinds of stuff. And although we did make a game or have a game internally and it's you know hugely complicated and painful that there's a project that doesn't have a client that's paying for it. Yeah, that's that's tricky. <laughs> Um, tell, tell us about some of the things you landed on that, you know, we, we started a company too. undertone effects is, is, uh, I'm the, the, the CEO for and, and creative director. Um, you, you mentioned kind of wanting to do things right, wanting to do things your way more sustainably. What, what does that mean to you guys? How, how does that manifest, uh, internally for you? You know, uh, I feel like there's like a, a, a conversation about morality here where, uh, I feel like, and I think that there's a ton of nuance and tons and tons of complexity when it comes to philosophy, and I'm, I'm not going to get so far into that, but, you know, I feel like it's really easy to mistake long-term efficiency for goodness. And I think a lot of things that we see as good are really just long-term thinking instead of short-term thinking, right? If I'm going to sacrifice the future for, and what often sounds like my personal gain, People don't really like that vibe, even if that's kind of mostly what we do as, as human beings. Um, but uh, I think a lot of our thoughts were just about, uh, you know, our reputation really matters. Um, the people that we get to know are people we're going to know forever, uh, including the people we hire, uh, the clients we end up doing work with. Um, and so I think sustainability at its core is for us was really social in nature and kind of like a, um, a network and community and relationship. And um, uh, we took the skills that we had built up over the decade or decades that came before that and, um, you know, kind of took that larger concept to, to, to test. And um, I think it's, it, we've survived nine, not, you know, nine and some odd years and, um, you know, I wouldn't say we aren't still struggling. There's still tons of stuff that we have to figure out and uh, aspirations for the company, but so far so good. Yeah, nice. Uh, you know, it, it's been a major thought for us as well. Um, you know, having, you know, we've all been, you work at big companies, you go through the grinder, <laughs> you know, there's, you know, everyone knows about massive crunch. That's, that's a thing. And, and I worked on great productions that had very little crunch and were like, you know, easy sailing, high fives all around. Everyone's happy. And I've worked on pretty, let's just to be diplomatic, <laughs> difficult <laughs> productions that were not like that. So yeah, a few things that we did too, you know, so a lot of us starting our company too, we, we talked, we have talked a lot about, you know, just treating our employees humanely and have sort of just being an employee centric company so that, you know, 
just happiness, the happiness of our employees is like a paramount thing for us. And, you know, we've instituted like siestas, our official policy. <laughs> or <clears throat> take an hour nap after lunch, which I do all the time. It's fucking awesome. <laughs> and other stuff you know, like I, I have a, a like something I like to do is take the thing that I believe in that I think is good and right, but have the most awful description for it. And, and in doing so, sort of like prove the rule, right? That like, I think it's good to be good just for the sake of good. You believe this is right and you pursue that and you be that person. I think that's a great way to be as a human being. That said, you know, if we're in this big machinery of the world and everyone else is there as well and we all have to get along and winning is easy to identify or success in failure, like we don't want to fail or we don't want to diminish or die out and we want to be successful and so i think a lot of the world will get in this argument about whether being good is effective and i think in this context are the people that we work with being happy is always going to be effective when you when you get to a place where you're not good to them you should before that happens you should fire them and that's that's totally reasonable thing like we need to accomplish certain goals and all the way until the moment you are literally not a part of the company, I'm going to treat you as well as possible. And let's, like, here's the awful way of putting it. Let's pretend I hated everyone around me. If I was smart, I would still treat them extremely well. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And, and you know, I've come to value exactly what you said a lot more as time goes on. You know, we, we've all been in circumstances where, like, Yay, great team, everyone gets along, and, and we're getting beers afterwards. That's kind of peak game, game day. It's a lot of fun. There's jokes going around. Like, all right. And we've all worked on productions where, like, there's a couple of assholes. <laughs> and it fucking sucks. It makes it kind of miserable. Uh, so, yeah, I think, it, it, you know, yeah. But you do have to, you know, while you're in the trenches, you have to be kind <laughs> to everyone and treat them well and, and get along as well as you can with the, the people you're with. Uh, sometimes they're not nice to you back, which is makes it a little painful. Yeah. I mean, like the feel like the two sides of that coin for me are that it's like it, one, it just feels really good to get along with people, especially in the work that we do, like, like exploring into the unknown and finding cool stuff together. It kind of doesn't get much better than that. And why can't it be then like emotionally really satisfying and feel good. But then the flip side of that is, um, you still can't argue against that. It's like, if people are unhappy, they'll be less pro less productive. And if it's your fault that they're unhappy, that means it's your fault they're less productive. Yeah, yeah, totally. I 100% I, I believe that. <laughs> um, let's talk about uh, some, of your, some of your latest work. You guys uh, created Epic Tavern. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? <clears throat> Definitely, you know. So first of all, it's not that much latest. It's It's been around for a while. I think it's our sort of our big, both like maybe the most interesting project I've ever worked on. And at the same time, like an albatross around our necks, you know, we, <laughs> yeah. we did a Kickstarter back in 2000 and um, geez, I think at this point, was it 17, I think 2017 and uh, you know, pulled in like 70, 80 K or something, you know, it was um, Kickstarter for a long time has really been more of a promotional vehicle than a fundraising vehicle. Yeah. Um, but that got the ball rolling. It gave us some idea that there was interest in the idea. And it's a game where you, um, it's a very sort of systems heavy, text heavy, um, sort of storytelling toy, uh, where you're set in the role of a, uh, person that owns a tavern in a fantasy world. And the, the kind of ideas that the would be heroes of the land are coming to your tavern for drinks. And you sort of through befriending them and serving them drinks, get them into groups and send them out on Dungeons and Dragons like adventures that are sort of partly procedurally generated and sort of partly custom generated. We wanted to create this illusion of a, of a player authored story experience. You know, we played a lot of these really hardcore PC games like a la um, Paradox Interactive and like Dwarf Fortress. And at the same time, sort of seeing a lot of this emerging idle game. I know that we have a story with idle games. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and these games that sort of at least explore the idea that you don't do things and or what you do is very limited or maybe unexpected. And I think we took some of those ideas and 
you know, used it as a vehicle to explore systematizing storytelling. Um, now that's a tall order. And when we started the process, we kind of didn't really understand what we were getting ourselves into. Seven years later, uh, it it's the thing that taught us um, uh, the kind of the inner workings of, of, of what us humans do almost all the time, which is storytelling. Yeah, and it's kind of like almost it's flipping D&D on its head a little bit. Well, normally you are the adventure going into the dungeon having that story. But to be, I mean, I would almost point an analog to like, football manager or something like that where like you're kind of designing like the structure that then the players do their thing in uh that's pretty cool sometimes we call it a reverse rpg yeah (laughs) um here's a question you know speaking of you know sort of procedural narrative and you know so is that to say some of it is like pre-written and then some of it kind of like takes elements together and randomizes them yeah Um, here, here's one thing that makes me wonder about, you know, the, the big talk. We were we were just hanging out at GDC and had some great conversations. Uh, you know, AI, machine learning, chat GPT. You know, it makes me immediately wonder about, you know, and, and I play a ton of D&D, by the way. And in a lot of the forums, that's being talked about a lot. Who's going to be using AI to sort of write story setup stuff and, and do narrative design to generate concept art for their characters and world setting bits? Um, you know, you guys are, you know, this game was made well before any of that was even in anyone's head at all. But it, yeah, it makes me wonder, um, do you have any thoughts about that? Is that something that it like could, you would want to incorporate and could incorporate or against incorporating? Like tell, tell us where you, you see that kind of tech, uh, in your future. On the moral side of it, we don't have any problem with AI whatsoever. Um, there's going to be disruptions it, there you know, hearts will be broken and some people will have a ton. I mean, a lot of people like us, I think, are just going to have a ton of fun because it's such an interesting and sort of new and deep tool to play with. Um, But um, I think that if we started the game now, it would almost be, it would just be a a broad range of different AI tools kind of interconnected and and doing what it's doing right now. We, We joke around that we sort of spent the last several years in Epic Tavern sort of pantomiming what AI does trying to you know trying to create an output that is sort of like an ai storyteller um and you know like the the work the physical work the the actual words that we put in the game are kind of like the training data and then we have the player be the i guess the agent of machine learning as it kind of navigates through all the data and strings it together in a story um it's very complicated it's it's maybe it's too complicated i think that we uh another joke i like to tell actually is we're for every uh, veteran systems designer you have at the beginning of a project's sort of conceptual uh, beginning, that you increase the complexity by one whole order of magnitude. And in those early conversations, we had five veteran systems designers. <laughs> <laughs> Man. Yeah, you're, you're right. In the, you know, procedural narrative, world building, you know, however you look at it, I mean, we, we are almost kind of like manually trying to, to sort of define rules and produce the things that an AI is going to just kind of do from the other direction, right? Just look at lots of things and output something similar. Well, the AI has this power, you know, or just like machine learning in general, this approach is, is what's new about it is that it can do the fuzzy connecting that needs to be done kind of at the scale of language. And I think that that's always been something that, that we haven't had access to as old school game developers, right? We make the world infinitely complex and as realistically as possible, pour tens, hundreds of millions of dollars into making that happen with tens and hundreds of developers, some of whom are super, super veteran and been doing it their whole lives. Um, and at the same time, it's like you, you, you can't you can't talk to someone in the game and it'd be anything other than either totally can or super strange. Yeah, man. Um, let's switch gears a little bit. Um, talk about the, you mentioned this is probably your favorite project you, you've you worked on. Um, can you just, just going back into your career, is, is there any favorite sort of like moment or, or, or you know, game, game that you worked on that like, What's the thing that you were most proud of that, that you've done in your career? So I don't think Epic Tavern is my favorite, most favorite project, but kind of the same way that the most important education in my life hasn't been my most favorite times. 
Yeah. <laughs> it's usually um, not. <laughs> but um, I, I mean, for me, it's very easily the Spider-Man Two project in two thousand four, uh, okay. for which yeah. I was the creative director, and it was definitely sort of like um, that was the big turn in my career. Uh, that was a big turn for me as a person. Um, it was like you know the first time I was on a team that was more than like seventy, and there was like about one hundred twenty people on that team. Um, it was it was a big deal, lots of pressure from all the sides uh, at Activision and inside the company. Um, got to work with a ton of awesome people, and we got to make a ton of awesome stuff. I mean, it's really, it was a really great project. Even if, and maybe partially my fault, there was a lot of crunch on that project. Although, early 2000s, I think that's, we were all doing a lot of that. Not yeah. trying to excuse it, but... <laughs> Yeah, it was pretty standard, and that that was in Treyarch. Yeah, yeah. Uh, is there is there a is there a moment in the game, a system that that you were like super, most stoked about that that you would sort of put a put a pin in, like, yeah. Well, I was on my way to being sort of like focused on systems design and or tech game design, um, uh, kind of as my kind of main skill set uh, in the lead up to Spider Man Two, um, but. Uh, the Spider-Man 2 definitely sort of sealed the deal. And I think it was really our expression of the Spider-Man swinging in the sort of like pseudo open world that we had, uh, where it all sort of came together. You know, this, these ideas of like, it's hard to have complexity and action, uh, especially because of just sort of the, even just, just the animation burden alone is kind of overwhelming. Um, and that, and, and getting sort of, a valid and elegant control experience amid that complexity. And this complexity I'm talking about is really just what players expect out of Spider-Man because Spider-Man is sort of like omni-mobile, uh, walk on every possible surface or crawl, <laughs> uh, fly through the air, you know, throw webs around, get incredible speeds going. Um, and so that... That was the that was the problem space that I think taught me the most in my life. Um, yeah, and those pulling are, it together was great. Those are those are hard problems to solve. <laughs> those are not <laughs> trivial. And we even had you know we even put a ton of effort sort of into the progression of the the control schemes of unlocking abilities and kind of um, you know it's it's not as well remembered, but the combat system in Spider Man Two had a really deep combo system that uh, used. The buttons weren't necessarily like um, there was a punch and a kick button, but there was also a web and a jump button that factored directly into the combat. And so it was our first stab at um, really employing the kind of verb concept in game design and that those buttons were intent, not uh, sort of a one to one specific thing. And, you know, and of course, it's always a one to one specific thing, but the web button did something with web in the flow of combos the jump button did something that would propel you up and away in the context of the combos. And that was a lot of fun to pull together. Awesome. Awesome. Have you played some of the newer uh, iterations of Spider-Man games? I think Insomniac's done the last couple. Is there anything in there that you were like, oh man, I wish the tech could have done that, you know, back, back uh, in the day. I mean, those Insomniac games are incredible. Uh, You know, I think, I think that, you know, for myself, I would, I would keep an eye on, uh, you know, public opinion of Spider-Man games ever since the early 2000s for obvious reasons. And, um, you know, there's, there was a lot of concern that the, that the moving around the world and the swinging and the moving around of Spider-Man kind of wasn't up to Spider-Man 2 standard. And there's a real good reason for that, actually, in that as in, at the beginning of Spider-Man 3, we took out a ton of sort of kludges and band-aids to polish and make the uh, control experience as good as it could be with the intent that we would rebuild the system up to that level and then put another bunch of Band-Aids and kludges on that to make it even better. Um, but partway through Spider-Man 3, basically every single major control stakeholder left before oh, they got back to making the controls good. Oh, no. <laughs> okay. And so from that point forward, there was a little bit of like, a, you know, medieval times with the Spider-Man locomotion experience uh, until Insomniac. And um, All right. <laughs> I mean, granted, I, maybe that's not a surprise because it's Omniac's an outstanding studio, and there are a ton of awesome people there. Yeah, and the the one of the uh, with the PS 
five with the latest one too. Like one 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 just technology advantage that they've got is the new like ultra fast drive reads, right? Where they can do like just massive, massive cities, which would have been just impossible, you know, sort of back then. Oh yeah, if you go back and you look at Spider Man two and look at how clunky our LEDs were, you, you can it's it's hilarious. Yeah. Um, in fact, it was even even at the time, I think that a lot of people felt hesitation about shipping it. But okay. there we were; it was too late. We had a big city. We had all this content. You're moving around, and you see hundreds and hundreds of meters, and you can at like you know I think it was like eighty or ninety miles an hour, like cruise your way through the city. Awesome. Um, let's take a turn. Uh, let's talk about your getting getting your start in the industry. Um, so if you were a creative director uh, back in, you know, the 2003, 2006 era, um, generally people don't start in that position. They'll work their way up. What, what, what was your first game company that you worked at? What, what did you do? And, and what was your sort of progression to working your way up to that? So, so I started in 97, I think, uh, around summertime. Uh, it was just... It was, I think I had just come in by, and it was at Treyarch. Um, I had befriended the co-founders through a, through a common friend. And um, the idea was I'd just swing by and take a look at their game. And they were working on a game called Die by the Sword at the time, which is interesting because it's a 3D sort of action fantasy combat game with a team that had zero animators. That one of the co-founders had some, had their PhD dissertation was on simulating human movement. Very interesting stuff. And kind of after I visited and played the game once, uh, we just hit it off. And I kept coming by. And then, oh, so it was right before summer, actually. Because then when I was, I was I was at Long Beach State as a sculpture major at the time. Oh, wow. uh, that summer, they're like, hey, you want to work here? <laughs> and I'm like, sure. And um, I never went back to school after that. Awesome. So who, who are some of the early people? Like when uh, my time at Activision, I, I sort of know Lamia as one of the heads of, of Treyarch. Who was it in, in the earliest days? So back when it started off, um, Treyarch made a deal with Interplay to, uh, to ship this game, Die by the Sword. Um, and, um, and it was run by uh, Pete Ackman and Don Likeness. Uh, okay. I think his name is Dohan Kosler. Actually, I think he changed his name. And then... Um, um, like Chris Bussing and Mark Now, they were this kind of like very early small team working on this game that they had kind of gotten funded through the you know pre uh, the the late '90s method of finding a publisher and getting getting funding. Um, so yeah, I, it, this was like very early days for Treyarch. The Treyarch that we know today is this this huge juggernaut, yeah. and it's like really kind of a a combination of Activision and, and whatever DNA uh, Treyarch had. Because Treyarch was purchased by Activision, I think, in, oh, in 2001. And there was some uh, controversy over the stock price because 9-11 had just happened. Oh. And the whole world was, well, considering whatever the next 20 years is going to be like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A weird, a weird time for sure. Um, you, you mentioned uh, you studied sculpture before this. What, what, what's, what's occupying your time outside of work these days? Do you have any personal projects or, or hobbies that you're, that you're into? I mean, not too much. I do a lot more cooking. I mean, like many people over the pandemic picked up cooking, although I was kind of on my way. I think I'd found like in the years leading up to the pandemic, I was um, cooking for my kids a lot and it sort of discovered it and was sort of selling the idea of cooking as a really great exercise for any designer uh, because you take mundane ingredients and you put them together in a way that you think will work for a particular audience and if, you know, if that's not a description of what we do as game developers. I don't yeah. know what it is. <laughs> it kind of is, for sure, yeah. That's interesting. And some things work together and some really don't. <laughs> yeah, and you get surprised. Like, I thought I knew my daughter, and it turns out that this is something I put together with a lot of care and effort, and it's just totally balanced. And if you make things too spicy for who you're do- dealing with, then that's <laughs> a problem, too. Um, talk about... Um, inspiration uh for you what what are some games that that you played as a fan that you really loved that that informed your approach to game design well so i think the first half of my career is heavily informed with sort of action and adventure and shooter experiences a lot of skill 
Um, you know, I, I was I was definitely and maybe embarrassingly so a part of that old school game dev mentality that would say things like story and games don't belong together. Um, and um, and I hated that I said that back then, but I did say <laughs> it. Um, but we were very fixated, like games like Ninja Gaiden. Um, uh, oh my God, now I have to. I have to decompress the, the old version of myself to kind of think these thoughts. <laughs> the old memories, yeah. Lots of RPGs, you know, a lot of JRPGs. I was definitely one of those blockbuster weekend JRPG kids when I was growing up. Um, but at the same time, I, I didn't really think about those games from making them because what really dominated a lot of the thought process was how, how to create interesting skill challenges through controls and how do you make the, the experience on screen make the make that experience satisfying so there's kind of two big pieces of that puzzle one is kind of the the kind of calculus of what is hard and what is easy in the context of a number of buttons and and reaction times and that's sort of like that's pretty sciencey and kind of very psychology based and that's only something that you know a lot of us felt we were good at feeling it because we had played so much uh but it's really hard to kind of articulate and then the other side of it, maybe it's a little more straightforward, even though I guess it's still psychology and sciencey, but this idea of impact and how to convey it, right? And this is something you know very well. And you probably also have the, have this experience in your life where there are a lot of people that just kind of don't see it. And I like calling that impact blindness, by the way. But, you know, yeah, just like that's a good term. withholding a few frames before Mel Gibson chops off someone's leg with a two-handed sword in Braveheart, um, you know, the the halts and the time dilation kicks that you put into place to kind of punctuate impacts, the way you describe follow through, how you signal at the beginning and then how you kind of, you know, describe how things play out with the results. All that stuff is a very VFX heavy and also sort of like action combat sort of skill set. And uh, those were the things that were, uh, and, and, and we had a whole team of designers that thought the same way. And I think that was, that was probably the luck that was really essential for Spider-Man 2's control scheme to come together and that we had a few projects before that to get to get to know each other. But then there's the second half of my career, we'll call it the last decade of my career, which has really shifted into kind of like a much higher level kind of what is entertainment? How do you engage human beings? How do you make them feel whatever it is you want to make them feel? And then that becomes almost entirely storytelling in nature. And so I spent, you know last decade plus really heavily focusing on the development of Epic Tavern and all the explorations that came from that um, understanding coming to this, this statement that our brains only do one thing and it is storytelling. And it's really at first only for one reason to make sense of what's happened so far. And then that flowers into everything else in our lives, all the communication, all the entertainment, all that stuff. At least that's my current belief. Okay. And just to, to riff off some of those ideas, you know, I, one, it's kind of funny that, that your early philosophy of story doesn't belong in games is like quite literally the inverse of what your game is, right? <laughs> the entire thing is creating a story. Um, yeah, and, and punctuating effects. You know, I, I've thought about, you know, in, in if you study like traditional, you know, hand animation, there's, you know, the sort of principles of animation and you mentioned a few, you know, overlapping action and anticipation and weight and all these things. And, and we use these terms all the time when we're sort of critiquing each other's work. And, and I, I've, I've wondered if, and thought about even formalizing like the game dev version of that, where there's a few other things that, that are, that are important. You know, there's, there's your, you know, you're communicating gameplay and, and other things in there. What? Um, yeah, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, I think I think the nice thing about doing something like that is that in the context of games, it's a little bit more, there's some complexities there that, that, that we've kind of figured out, right? Kind of like, this needs to work in a wide range of circumstances, not just the one circumstance you're putting together. And that forces us to solve certain problems. And it's it's been an interesting time hearing about that. Yeah. You, you mentioned too, like, like, uh, sort of the, the viscerality of the controls, right? Here's one, one uh, idea that I've had. I've never tested, but I wonder if it would be a viable game design thing where think, think of like uh, a vertical shooter or something, right? You're, you're a plane and then you have enemies come out in patterns and you, you continue. Or, or say a racing game. Like there is kind of a, you know, 
every player is going to handle each moment slightly differently, right? But there's kind of a, a cadence and a rhythm that you get into with with your your hands, with your fingers, with your input device. In, in a racing game, like you're you know you're pedaling and you're turning and like there's this sort of flow that you get into. I've wondered if if it could be possible to sort of essentially define that and allow that to define the rest of the things. So for example, if I'm doing sort of a, maybe a wipeout like racing game, have it generate the track, like close your eyes and give yourself a controller and, and, and just, just kind of do like, break, you know, like kind of like let yourself kind of like the designer design like a fun rhythm that your your gestures are doing and like let the track itself kind of manifest from that or even you know the the bullet hell game or or the vertical scroller yeah just like you know just this 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 cadence of like the left button the right button and joystick and like let the enemies that come out be defined by sort of this this rhythm and you know as a you know uh, i play music a little bit <laughs> Like to me, like that, you, you know. I think of it in terms of like rhythmical, rhythmic cadences and, and and progressions in a song, and like and going from like hyper fast moments to slow, and having contrast in in rates of things. I don't know. That's just been a kind of a philosophical idea I've thought about for a while now. Well, what's funny about that is that's kind of the way I bridged between the two ideas of second by second action to the story. Um, you know. A good action game has this sort of millisecond by millisecond story. And, and by that, I just mean that it has pacing and rhythms and the meanings are, are spaced out in the right sort of ways, in ways that, ways that feel good to human brains, right? I, I, another thing I like to describe as story these days is really the configuring information into a shape that is easier for humans to, to absorb and, and retain and understand. And so, you know, obviously... You know, if we were to read a novel about math and it's just describing it in prose the whole way through, there's going to be some difficulty understanding the math. I mean, not that the conventional way we teach math is a whole crap load better, um, but if we can find the way to shape information, even like an explanation of, let's say, how to drive a car even, that you shape it the right way, it, it's fun. It's interesting, right? You you lean in. Suddenly, you care about what's going to happen next. It's just storytelling. And so, pap, you know, ABBA, ABBA, back back, ABBA, back back, jump. You know, those those kind of rhythms. Um, I think are just finding the right ways for those to be uh, is a huge part of it. And it's the same in stories. And it's the same in a kind of like a in like a, a series of explosions to kind of send off the end of an experience. I mean, all those things are, they have a lot of intersection. And, and and I guess, well, a lot of their intersection exists kind of in the sort of rhythm and magnitude space. Yeah, and it makes me think of like early arcade games to where, where like, you know, say Defender, which is a kind of notoriously hard game, right? You get into this like, you know, you get into this flow and and it has some of that 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 storytelling arc going on at, at just sort of a micro level, right? Where you know when you die, it's like ah, there's there's your there's your rest, or like between you know at, right before a wave comes out. So so there's these little arcs that are going on, just like are going on in a story, just like are going on with your fingers. Are you going to be able to finish up what you need to do with the wave? But you know if you if you don't get that de uh, dealt with appropriately, right? It suddenly gets really tricky at the end. And you're the whole time you're hoping that doesn't happen in Defender. Yeah. <laughs> and then if it does and you overcome it, right, that's uh, that's we there's plenty of stories we know like that. And, you know, talking about, you know, sort of story and, and its role in in video games, too. You know, I, and now I think about uh, The Last of Us, right, like that now has moved into television as a medium. That's that's been a big hit. So, yeah, you know, maybe another way I, I would you know, your, your early impulse of, of not story and games, I, you know, I, I think another way to, to sort of say that, that maybe is, is still relevant is like that, that it's, it's the sort of gameplay first is, is a term we've all, you know, heard and used a million times, right? Like that kind of has to be 
Well, depending on the type of game, right? Like some games are, are certainly very narrative driven. A, a Last of Us game is right. There, there's there's sort of story things that are playing out. But if if you, and and it, but if you're not you know having fun in combat and stealthing and doing the thing and collecting and, and they're kind of moving your brain between these spaces in in at, in a sort of narrative story arc. But even just a, a gameplay arc, right? Where you're in combat, it's tense, like, oh, you're going to die. Ah, okay, now I'm just, like, collecting bandages and, and doing stuff. And then a, a kind of an emotional story beat. So it, that's interesting to, to see it sort of flow between them all. But if you don't have good gameplay, <laughs> like, if it isn't fun to, like, fuck up the zombies, like, you know, what are we doing here? That, so that, that kind of has to be... Well, I think primary. that there are, some, there are some big pieces here, right? And so if the story, the kind of overarching story, if it's the worse it is the more the gameplay kind of has to hold everything up on its own and it's its own internal pacing kind of like, um, let's say that, uh, that you're going to do a five minute activity, right? And it takes three steps. And if that activity is not going to be very repeatable, if those steps are always exactly the same. And if the, if you know what's going to happen, like if at the beginning of those five minutes, you know, what's going to happen at minute five with a hundred percent certainty, you just won't even, you won't even finish it, right? Your brain's like, I'm done. I get it. I'm, I'm happy with this. And so kind of like, I mean, uncertainty is another humongous element of what we do. And that's kind of really strongly connected to the anticipation, right? You're like, this might happen. And, and, or these are two things that might happen. And one of them is much more interesting to you than the other, but you're going to have to put some work in to get there, for example. And if you can, if you make that process promise at the beginning of any stretch of time, uh, that's definitely going to get someone to lean in. And then now as they step their way through that experience and kind of putting in effort and paying attention to how things are changing, as long as they don't get a promise that seems like totally full of crap, and as long as they don't get a result that seems totally kind of against the expectations that were set up, you can kind of keep that ball going. But, you know, as, as developers, we only have so many things that we can throw at the player because we have only 100% of our resources to develop with. And so it has to sort of get broken up in these sort of clever ways. And we have to make use of kind of pacing and contrast to the best of our abilities to keep it fresh from moment to moment. And that can happen at the high level story in a way, but those moments are longer or it can happen, you know, in a, in a, in a, in a street fighter fight, which happens, you know, in sub second frames. or I think like a good example for the kind of all the minute cycle, all the kind of um, scales of time in between that are like uh, your kind of your conventional RPG experiences where it's like, Oh, I can do this thing minute by minute. I can do this thing hour by hour. I think, um, you know, monster hunter comes to mind where a fight can take like half an hour against one big monster and you know the, the 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 techniques they use for wounding the monster and having the monster move on to run away and move to another place starts kind of creating changes to the experience that kind of keep my mind willing to pay attention i guess does that make sense yeah yeah totally totally yeah i remember you know back in the call of duty days some of the designers talking about you know different like length cycles right there's you know, you want so so taking the macro one, your, your evening of gameplay, right? You might get five or so matches. In. So, so what is the like arc that you're going to go through during that? Okay, and then within one match, okay, here's here's a you know twelve minute little you know episode that you're going to do. What are, what's the progression inside of that? And <laughs> all these little cookie trails of dopamine that you're like totally. injecting every like kill streak that you get and and everything. And then you know you can just keep going down to the like. You know, there, there's, there's the, there's the individual sort of engagement where, like, okay, I've got four seconds now of like, like really intense, you know, fighting, and then you know, even less than that. So, yeah, it's, it's interesting to think about things in terms of different, like, scopes of time and 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 how, like, all that, you know, is sort of designed. Well, I think it's crazy how much of a world there is just inside of moving, seeing a target going into scope, trying to lay the, the center of the screen on the target and pulling the trigger and all the things that we've done to make that cool. Like that is insane. And that's definitely something that non-game developers couldn't possibly understand. Like, you know, that I have hundreds of hours, maybe more than a thousand hours of having thought about just those moments. 
and all the things to do to make it more interesting. And there's like, you know, the behavior of your target. I mean, if it's multiplayer, it's other humans, but, you know, you've, you've shaped things so that they're going to behave a certain way. If it's AI, then you've completely controlled how that thing is going to behave. And just the feeling of the, of the ADS movement, how snappy it is, the way the bullets don't go all perfectly in the center of the screen, the way the yeah. thing moves up, <laughs> animating and shaking things. The, the specific kind of glimmer of the tracers of the bullets, the sounds, it's, it's awesome. I mean, I, the, the, the funny thing too, is it's <laughs> like one's experience of designing that is like, you are looking at functionally like numbers in a spreadsheet. <laughs> totally, totally. <laughs> seven. Oh, I want a seven here. That's going to be the right one. Let's see if seven feels good. <laughs> like to be just fair, <laughs> it's the, does it feel good? Right. And then you change yeah. the number. Does it feel good? In fact, I would say that anybody could do a great job at that if they had tools that allowed them to, within one second, feel the changes they made and that they could theoretically change everything and understand what they were changing. It's a tall order. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I, I put a lot of value in that too. I, I will say, you know, having worked in custom engines most of my career and doing a lot of Unreal stuff now, um, Infinity Ward had a couple of little tools in there that were kind of unprecedented at the time, like 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 the the change and and play loop was incredibly fast. It it was like within a second. They had another tool that that I would give a ton of credit to. Uh, it was kind of a it was kind of a hackery of a couple of different things, but it was functionally like a replay system where, for me, the the effects artist man did this help me do my job, but. And I've never seen this in another engine. I don't think Unreal can do it. And I've thought about like trying to build this in Unreal, as just like as a, to make as a, a thing. But I could play through the game as just a player. So so you know I'm I'm going through the jungle and a helicopter is crashing and its blades spinning and I'm like ah, it's chopping the ground up in front of me. So I so I could run up and play through it and you know kind of run back or whatever. And then I could hit a button that would rewind time 10 seconds. And then it would just sort of play through that. Nice. And then I could put that, I ran a command that put it on a, on a, put that command on a loop. So it would just like play through that moment over and over again. And then I could go to my effects editor and just type 12 cent. Like I, I, it was like this little gesture of 12 enter control S to save it, control alt S to send it. So That's I just amazing. got little flow of like i'm watching it are, are the are the like bits of rocks flying past my face fast enough a little slower no now they're short a little little farther it was just it was an amazing like process and i've never seen anything like that in any other tools it was magnificent i would theorize that that's a part of why you're a genius in that way <laughs> well i didn't develop the tool no no but like you got to like you know like because we have a very similar tool with um, the Spider-Man control stuff where we could stop it and step through frame by frame because we could actually time dilate every all the frames of the animations. We had a lot of control over. We could skip what we wanted to and stuff. And once we really got heavy into that, it totally changes your brain chemistry. Like now you think in those terms. And if you've done, you know, if you've done that for like, you know, hundreds of hours, like your brain is comfortable spotting all these things. And like, you know, like, you know how like you have to really understand all the things uh, in a in a category if you want to talk about it off the cuff and comfortably. And like, you know, what do we do? It's all we do when we hang out. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, let's take a little little turn into uh, I wanted to talk to you with you about uh, idle the idle game genre for a little <laughs> bit. So a, a kind of funny anecdote, uh, a night out drinking with you <laughs> back in the day. Uh, I think we were all about to get in the cab, and you were talking to uh, who was it? I think it was one of the think founders, Petri Yarvalayton. That's right, yeah, Petri. And uh, you guys were talking about uh, a clicker game or something, and I uh, talking about exponential representation of numbers. <laughs> what? I'd never heard of a clicker game up to that point, and uh, so I, I inquired a little bit and got fascinated, and then. Uh, uh, my wife <laughs> wanted to kill me after a while. I got addicted to uh, Hero, and about maybe a year, year and a half later, uh, I was twentieth in the world at Clicker Hero <laughs> without having spent a single penny. <laughs> so 
Yeah, it was. Uh, so let's talk about uh, idle games. What is it about exponential numbers and their representation of them in there that that was that fascinating uh, seed that <laughs> led me on this dark path of idle game play? <laughs> that was amazing. And when I saw you the next time, you had a a beefy phone uh, battery that you had constantly plugged into your phone, <laughs> <laughs> so I could always click. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I think I think it. It happened with um, Cookie Clicker, and then Progress Quest. But and at the same time, we had a we I think we had some some client work with someone who wanted to bring some of those Chinese Diablo games that played themselves over to the states. Nothing ever came of that though, um, and so it was something that I mean I had a lot of hostility towards the idea at first. This idea that you're going to play the game by not playing the game was like sort of I was very emotionally resistant to that. Yeah. <laughs> But then I just started playing Cookie Clicker because, you know, some friends were playing it. And, you know, when other people play games for a while, I start to care a little bit more about it. I want to understand what's making them tick. That's kind of the, the maybe the most important professional perspective I have that I've held on to. It's like someone understands, someone is having a good time. Let me understand why they're having a good time because that's sort of relevant in what we do from day to day. But, um, yeah, this... I eventually got to the point where I now see idle games as the most important type of game for a game designer to research. Because if you can take a game and pull away everything except for its progression, naked progression, in fact, it's just number goes up, right? And make that engaging. I think that really says something really deep and essential about the way our brains work and how, how they get satisfied. Now, it might, you know, some of these games might seem sort of cheap and it's a cheap trick, but they put the work in for that cheap trick to work. And so let's say you're never going to make an idle game. In fact, you're going to make uh, games just like Last of Us. It's still worth it to understand. It's still worth it to understand what it's like if you take things away and still make it interesting and how little you need to get people to pay attention. Um, I was really... And then, you know, I, I really got into the idle game genre. And basically, at this point, I'll have one or two idle games running at all times on my computer and probably one on, on my phone. And <laughs> just kind of keep an eye on it. I don't, I don't try to, I, I don't try to, I don't time trial it ever just because it requires that then it's not, an, it's not quite an idle game at that point too. That's really more like, um, um, it's kind of like surfing, you know, it's like, I have to, I'll have to, I have to hit the buttons. And then when we hit this turning point, then I need to change this mode. So it's a little bit, you know, it's funny, I guess idle game in active mode is kind of like piloting a starship in a uh, Star Trek. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, I think this, you know, more and more as time goes on, too, you're finding these idle games uh, connecting themselves to a narrative and finding a lot of success. Uh, Eastside Games and their games like um, uh, It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia and um, uh, Trailer Park Boys. Uh, you know, it's not like a, it's not like a, a deep narrative experience necessarily, but it's freaking hilarious. And, and it does help you keep going to just see the story unfold. It's like what happens next, even when it's cheap, is still sort of interesting to us. And then, you know, God forbid you connect it to hilarious characters that you, on a show that you enjoyed. But that under the hood, what drives all of those kind of like branching statements or um, changes to the story are just the number goes up. And yeah, it's like set in the context of these buildings are generating money and the characters in Trailer Park Boys are, you know, pissing in buckets and all that stuff's still <laughs> happening. <laughs> but, I mean, those are also really interesting experiences to explore and understand because even if you're going to have a story like Trailer Park Boys, that you can still reflect it with numbers and you have an actual, because it's actually a very successful and money-making game, you, we have a real-life example of it being successful uh, for the audience. Yeah. Um, and, and another little bit about them too that that I, I kind of find valuable for other things too. I played a ton of World of Warcraft, right? And and if you look at, you, you know, just over time, as as you know, you add more levels and more power and more armor, and then the numbers go up. Like, it, it is so easy for it not to be a linear curve; it's an exponential curve. And so, like, <coughs> you know, 
way World of Warcraft handles it is to do these these crunches and resets where the numbers all squish down to an early stage of. But that same problem, they're just gonna yeah. essentially have to continue to do it over and over. And clicker so, games handle it in a different way, right? They they just get into like the exponent of a thing and present that differently, which that's kind of a fascinating bit. Well, I mean, it yeah, the idle games have no problem with like enormous exponents. So like, you know, numbers that would have more zeros than would fit on your screen and stuff. Uh, but but World of Warcraft does can you still hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. Okay, I just lost your video feed. No worries. Um, so, World of Warcraft, every expansion, right? They do the reset. And so it's still like a sawtooth. And uh, most idle games do sort of like a prestige type reset as well. There's like a yeah. strong analogy there, right? It's, it's, it's kind of like the only solution because otherwise we can't create, we can't create content for one times 10 to the four and right. that content also were for one times 10 to the 200. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. But there's a reason why it has to be exponential, actually. Because um, yeah. linear gains aren't interesting. You know, if in World of Warcraft, you, at the beginning, uh, at level one, you did five points of damage. And at level 60, you did 20. It, it, it just doesn't feel right. Yeah. And, and when you go farther out on that curve, too, like you're doing, you know, 1,075 damage and you level up. Now you're doing a thousand seventy nine. Like, yeah, you know, it, uh, it's not it's not good. It doesn't feel right. And I think that's one of the essential things that the clickers sort of make absolutely clear. I mean, by the time I was fighting Arthas in ice, I think in Ice Crown Citadel, I think we were doing a million points more than a million per hit. Or maybe it was the expansion after. And then they did it uh, that day. I think that's when they did the they did was it, it was the first take three zeros or take six zeros off the off the yeah. uh, off the numbers. I mean, and, you know, it's not like, I don't think that was the plan. I think that they're just like, I, the game's still going. It's 10 years later. What do we do? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, you patch this somehow. Um, let's take another turn into the future now. Um, how, how do you see games changing over the next 10, 20, even 100 years? We're, we're early in the cycle of a new console generation right now. Um, what are some things that we can't do right now that, that you suspect, you know, time will solve? What are, what are some things you're excited about in gaming in the future? So I think sometime in the near future, we'll be able to have games with social negotiation in a way that, <coughs> excuse me, that just wasn't possible before. And that'll be definitely accommodated by, by AI uh, tools. Um, I feel like though, you know, more, in terms of just like where the industry was heading before and, and where we're going to be very, very shortly. Um, you know, this, this idea of bringing together experimentation in narrative and with interact and, and interaction, um, that's kind of reached a pretty sophisticated point right now. And it's really cool to see all these really interesting ideas. And obviously making games is easier than it's ever been before. That said, being a successful game maker, exactly as hard as it always has been. <laughs> um, but that means there's just so much more DNA floating around, right? If you, you know, the, I used to, to spend a lot of time with like Armor Games and Congregate just to sort of like farm up ideas and just see interesting little things that people were doing. And then of course, mobile became much bigger than that. And there's like itch.io where it seems like all that stuff gets aggregated or a lot of people upload stuff there. You know, this sort of... Um, all these little fragments of ideas that are floating around and bringing them together is producing really crazy results. I think, I think, do you feel like, remember back when the rogue like games got big, I feel like that was like sort of like the beginning of kind of the conceptual remix culture in game dev. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, man, I remember playing the original rogue on my, <laughs> my 386 or something that was just ASCII art. And then it was fucking killer. <laughs> yeah, totally, totally, totally. <laughs> and then you have a game like these days, like Vampire Survivors, which I don't think anyone was expecting to be so big. And yeah. at the same time, it maybe those of us that have been in the industry forever feel like, why don't we try to switch up our session lengths? Why don't we play more aggressively with the various things that we see as conventional in games and try to find, you know, interesting spots that are that are inside the space that we're existing in, right? We're always looking out into the darkness and maybe that's because we're addicted to exploration, but you know, there's, there's a ton of interesting stuff to find out there. And I feel like playing games is better than it's ever been. And it'll just keep getting better and better. 
Yeah, totally. I, I, I've got uh, three achievements left on Vampire Survivor. <laughs> I'm almost 100% at it. Uh, speak, speaking of like inspiration, one, one of my favorite game festivals to go to, I think it's kind of little known, but um, Indiecade in, in Culver City in yeah. October. I haven't gone for a few years because I've been out on the East Coast, but man, there's some cool stuff. They do night games there, which are all like things playing with light and projectors. Um, super fascinating, fun little weird indie game concepts, and like those, those really excite me a lot. Did you ever actually play Johann Sebastian ba- Joust? Oh, totally. <laughs> <laughs> it's so interesting. <laughs> I I had I got it set up so so if you if you emailed the devs, they would give you a piece. No, yeah, I was trying to get an eight player version because I played I played it at Indiecade eight player. And holy shit, that <laughs> took the crowd. And I so I got it on my PlayStation three or four, and yeah, that was our party game for a while. We'd have we'd have you know randos over at the house, and I'd set up just a TV out in my bushes, <laughs> and awesome. people would run around my backyard with their controls. That is such a fun game, and and I think they they have like. <clears throat> That, that is eight players that that is possible to get a hold of <laughs> maybe not by conventional means but i had a very similar experience i wonder if it was the same indicate <laughs> yeah yeah that that was awesome um yeah super fun oh you know uh, just to briefly mention uh in terms of games that were inspiring in more recent times from the storytelling standpoint um um, um uh, disco elysium and hades come to mind in terms of okay. just amazing game experiences that were not expected, had a lot of interesting stuff in them. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna write those down. I haven't played them yet, but those those are sort of on my list to to check out. Um, before we go, let's let's sort of uh, talk about uh, people who are, are aspiring to to uh, the heights that you have achieved. Um, you know, the standard model, you know, you, there's a lot of colleges now that teach game design and, you know, back in the day, people get in through the, through tests, the test departments work their way up. Um, but it is a very small subset of people that make their way up to a chief creative officer at a company. Tell us, uh, what advice do you have <coughs> for people who are maybe well into their career now that are, that are seniors, leads looking to, uh, start up their own thing and 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 uh, kind of run the show, make their own games. Well, I mean, as a starter, leadership has to be interesting to you. Um, and I can make it sound more interesting um, that you have to make you have to be invested in making things go well for the people you care about. I think anybody could say yes to that, right? Um, and I think that especially in game development or people in our demographic, it's really easy to have resistance to it. Uh, you know, we run, we, we run into devs, you know, new young devs all the time that are really uncomfortable with networking. Um, the social relationship side of what we do is the foundation, I think. And that all of the techniques and all of the things, the sort of like stuff that gets us excited specifically about games, that rests on top of that. And that if you're denying kind of developing and building relationships with the people that do the same kinds of things as you, the people that you work with, uh, your audience, um, then that's going to that's gonna be a severe impediment in moving up uh, through the ranks into leadership positions. And um, not because you're unwilling to do politics, but because you're unwilling to learn the skill that makes you better at making, you know, multiple people more successful. Yeah, I, I totally agree too. And, and, you know, not many of us get into this profession with the idea of like being management. <laughs> not day. at all. I know. Seriously. <laughs> this thing starts with a love of games of playing them of like, just, just being motivated to want to make them. So it, you know, and you know, a lot of people get promoted to, to leads that, that, maybe aren't suitable for it, aren't, aren't, uh, aren't interested in it. And, and it's kind of like you're thrusted. My, my first leadership role was at Infinity Ward. My, my, you know, there was a bit of a studio. Uh, I, I don't know. I won't, <laughs> I won't try to characterize what happened. A transition. Back. There was a transition. Was a transition. Yes. Uh, my, my boss left. And uh, so, yeah, I was just kind of promoted to lead as, as de facto. And so, 
you know, all of a sudden, you know, that's something that, that I had never thought about before, that it was time for me to care about. And, you know, I put a lot of effort into learning. I read books about it and, and, and read blogs from other managers, what they thought was good. And I, and, you know, it doesn't, you, you learn the most from your failures. <laughs> Sometimes it's got to be okay to fail. I, I don't I, think I you learn anything from your successes because you already knew that. Yeah, when, when when a game is going well, when everyone's firing on all cylinders, when deadlines are getting hit, it's real easy to be a manager. <laughs> <You're> <laughs> totally. That's it. It's when, you know, you've things are kind of falling apart and and people aren't delivering and and that that's you know, how do you bring someone back from the brink and, and you, you know, and how do you get rid of them when it's when that's not going to happen? Like those are those are hard lessons to learn and yeah. Well, I think the first practice, though, is friendship. I, I'm assuming you were kind of in a similar situation to me where I got kind of moved into the lead design position because there was kind of no one else to do it. Um, but I'd been working with the people I've been working with for ages by then. And so it, it, you're now serving your friends. Um, you know, that's why I think that's the most elegant way to learn those lessons because then it's from like a place of caring. Uh, it's like a, a, a place of we're together in this and, you know, someone needs to create alignment. Uh, you don't, you know, I guess the big mistake, another mistake, or if, you know, for newcomers, it's not about your ideas being the ones that get followed. It's not about your instructions, right? It's about a much kind of larger, more, in some ways, esoteric idea of all the people moving together. And that means a big part of that is them getting along. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, it's, <laughs> it can be hard. <laughs> oh, there are huge challenges. And I think about two co contrasts in leadership styles over time, right? Where, you know, you look back to the fifties and sixties when it's like, there's your boss and, and, you know, you know, better do what he says. And like, I don't know, it, like that was sort of de facto, right? That's kind yeah. of just how it all operated. And, and like, I can't picture it that way anymore. Right. Like, you know, I, you know, leading, leading by example, getting in there and, and, and being, doing the work yourself. I think that's one of the biggest challenges for me in leadership has been, you know, before that, when you're a production individual and you're like, you know, you're expect you're, you're outputting work, right. You're for my, in my case, doing effects for levels. And then at, at one point, okay, now, now you have to deal with sort of schedules and who's on what and are things on time and you know all this sort of stuff is coming into play and you're going to a lot more meetings and you're responding to a lot more emails and it's like that like uh, making stuff that thing that I, I loved to do it's like you know how, balancing the two of those I, I I did not find a good balance in my sort of earlier days of of you know, the impulse to do stuff. And, and you, you as a lead may even have a formal workload you're expected to do. And it's like, <clears throat> I can't do both of these. So now I am crunching and that's not setting a good example. Cause you know, I don't know. It's, that's a tricky one is, is delegating and, and, and finding a, a reasonable life balance yourself as a lead. I don't think there's a good answer. I think for both of us, thankfully, when we were doing that, we were younger. <laughs> because <laughs> yeah i just i just i just overcommitted back then a lot and i mean i can't do it quite as well i'm, I'm gonna be 50 soon and i can feel it it's not you know it's not the same and i know it's not just that my body's not as, as as strong as it used to be it's like the thought process needs more care i need to be a little more strategic in how i burn my uh conceptual resources yeah. And, you know, I, I think one one little bit of philosophy for me in, in management that that I sort of lean into these days is just trust, trusting the people that you're putting responsible for things, you know, b believe in them, even if like you don't agree necessarily with their outcome. It's I think it's not as important to just like force how I would do it on them as opposed to you know, supporting the decisions they're making and being okay with it. Like, you know, you have to trust your team. Yeah. I, I try not to use military analogies as much as I used to, but it's kind of hard for me not to, but I, I, I liken a game development team as a bunch of generals that all have their own army. 
and it would never make sense for one general to walk over to the troops of another general and tell them what to do. And I think yeah. that that packed in that example is the reason why we don't why we don't micromanage down or up or or sideways. It's that we that person's there for a reason, and the quality of the project you might want it to be better, but it's going to be exactly as good as the team. And if as long as everyone's getting along, you're going to get close to close close ish to your best your a better result. Um, you know, we get. I think you know when you start off, you're fixated on your own details. And so once you, I don't know, grow up or have more responsibilities or, or become in a management position, you can kind of, you don't forget that, right? So you, you imagine like we can make these things better, but it's really hard to recognize the cost of making those things better. And I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't know if I have the answer, but I do know that more often than not that uh, getting in there and trying to force a result, it, it costs more than it's worth. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> you know, well, every time I hang out with you, I have just a fascinating conversation that I think about <laughs> for days to come. Nice. Same. <laughs> uh, it is always a pleasure to run into you. Uh, thank you so much for joining me on this episode of Architects of Imagination. Thank you for having me and invite me back anytime. All right. Killer man. Uh, I should also thank, uh, again, our sponsor, Utterton Effects. Um, thank you to our co-founder and executive producer, Martika Ibarra, uh, and the whole team. Uh, Alex and uh, yeah, check us out on everywhere podcasts uh, are published Spotify, Apple, YouTube. Uh, and thank you very much again for tuning in. We'll see you next time. This is Architects of Imagination, and I'm DJ. Bye, guys. Thank you. Thank you.